Uh, this, I thought, was a good morning. Uh, like I said, we are, we are often, you know, in uh, very different shoes and very different uh, seats, you might say. But I was empathizing with you all uh, this morning, picturing you being here this morning, when I first started reading the lectionary for this and thinking, the abomination of inflation? I'm thinking, I'm like, tran- and, and, and Bob's here. I'm, I'm, suddenly I'm translated back to 19... 19- and uh, teachings on the rapture and that sort of thing. And I'm thinking, you know, I'll bet there are people here who didn't come this morning thinking they were going to hear a reading on the abomination that causes desolation. <laughs> so this is, I think, a good morning. As you know, from time to time, I just sort of instruct a little bit on what we're doing here uh, in the liturgy. And these readings have been happening at, at this sequence for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And in fact, there's a passage that I'm sure you all love from the Gospels where Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. So even the synagogues were doing readings, something like this. And when Jesus stood up to read, that's what he was doing. Only he just, you know, I don't know if it was the, uh, the appropriate reading for the morning and uh, Jesus told, uh, just decided to do it, or if he just picked a passage in Isaiah to describe himself, I mean, we don't know. But it's very likely that it was something like this, that this was the week to read this passage from Isaiah, and he did. So here's the deal with the lectionary, with the readings. They are a part of worship. Okay. We will, I, I can be flexible. The, uh, the way to think of these readings is that we're placing ourselves worshipfully before them. And what I'm doing is not a Bible study. I mean, I teach Bible studies. I love teaching the Bible. But you don't want to think of this as a Bible study as if you're trying to, you know, learn something like definitive about the abomination of desolation or something like that. What we're doing in a setting like this is that we're worshipfully putting ourselves before the text and, and letting the text speak to us. And what it does uh, is it, it sort of forces all of us to stay off our pet peeves. And, and what the lectionary is designed to do over three years is every year it basically gives you the outlines or the contour of the biblical study. Sorry, the biblical text. Once you've done that all three years, you have heard the Bible read aloud in public. And the idea, again, is for us to just sort of set ourselves worshipfully before it, not so much to understand or memorize that, oh, the abomination of desolation, that's brought up in Daniel and Mark. And so that's the understanding that we're looking for. What we're trying to do is put ourselves before the text. So let me see if I can show you how to do that this morning and and what I think of uh, when I think of it. Now, you know, of course, when, when you bring up this kind of topic, you know, there's all kinds of theories about the end times. And, you know, I, I come out of an atmosphere in which we specialized on the end times. In fact, Jesus was supposed to be here in 1988, and I'm still a little disappointed. Uh, it would have saved me a lot of grief had Jesus actually come back in 1988. And... Uh, there was a different set of math that, uh, by another uh, actually more famous person who said that uh, Jesus was supposed to be back in the year 2000, which has sort of a nice ring to it, but it actually was based on some mathematics that uh, I'll tell you another day. 
So there's all kinds of, you know, theories about the millennium. Is it a literal thousand years? You know, the tribulation. Is it, is it literal seven years? You know, what about Armageddon? You know, what about the rapture? And I'm just telling you, you did, I know you did not come into church this morning thinking, I'm thinking about the rapture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just thinking that, you know, I'm glad I got a sunroof in my car because that's going to make it a lot easier for the Lord. You know, I can just go up through. I just know that not one of you walked in here thinking, you know, I've been wondering about Armageddon. And I wonder if uh, I I, I wonder if Secretary of State Clinton is going to light the fuse that, you know, you know, this is the way we used to think. I mean, anytime anybody burped in the Middle East, it had you know, cosmic significance. And remember, some of you are old enough to remember, you know, Henry Kissinger and, you know, that whole vibe, you know. And and it's fine. I'm not putting anybody down. I actually love everybody I'm playing with here and have high respect for them. <laughs> I honestly do. But what we're really trying to do, is, and this is the one takeaway that you are going to take out of this room today, and that is God superintends history. Just write that down. God superintends history. The message of these texts is something like all kinds of really bad stuff is going to happen. And it's going to be really confusing. And you're not going to know what to do. Even Jesus is a bit confusing. I mean, come on, look at your gospel reading. One sentence, he's saying, stand firm. A paragraph later, he's saying, head for the hills. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't, I can, I completely get the disciples Going, oh, Jesus is ticked off again. We forgot the bread, you know, or, you know. I mean, I know that there was a combination of Jesus going, oh, these guys are never going to get it. And the disciples really never getting him. I mean, can't you just hear them going, which is it, Lord? Stand firm or head for the hills. We're a little confused here. And, and so it's, so if you, what I'm saying is if you feel a little confused about what's known as eschatology. Ooh, there's a big word for a Sunday morning. Uh, eschatology, you know what biology is, right? Biology is the study of life. Um, uh, physiology is the study of, of, you know, physical things. Well, eschatology, eschatos is simply the Greek word for last. And so eschatology is the theological category of studying how does this story end? That's all it's about. How does the story of God, which had a beginning in his intentionality, Meaning you're not here by accident and none of you here arose out of the blue. There's not one human being who simply is accidentally here. Everybody was created by God and God had a purpose in creating not only humanity, plural, but you personally. And so our story has a beginning and it has an end, an eschatos. And all we're simply doing is we hear these readings week in and week out is we're saying, Lord, how do we embody that story? Not how do we know the math around predicting the time of your coming? I mean, that's interesting stuff, I admit. But it's not fundamental. What's fundamental is, Lord, how do we place ourselves worshipfully before and in this story? Because worship, at its bottom line, is not even the beauty of what we've just done or what we're going to do. Worship is ascribing worth. And so you say, okay, Lord, I get this story. You're up to something. And I want to live in this story. And so when we come week in and week out to place ourselves before these texts, that's what we're doing. We're saying, okay, church, historic church, in some cases, 
as far back as 1,700 years, we get that you're trying to tell us the story of the Bible every year. And so Sunday after Sunday, when we sit here and we hear the word of God read out loud, we read it in the midst of worship, which is ascribing worth to it, which is why we stand, especially at the gospel. But we don't stand before the gospel to think, okay, who are today's false Christ? Well, if you're a Republican, it's Barack. If you're a Democrat, it's Newt. Uh, if you're on Fox, it's Keith Olbermann. If you're on MSNBC, it's Sean Hannity. I mean, we got all kinds of false Christs and false teachers and people who have an explanation for the world. Can you hear me? See, what's happening here is actually competing stories. You know, political parties have a story to tell and they shape the world in a certain way in their own understanding. And then they broadcast that. Um, physicists have understandings about how the world's going to end. And, and these, you know, theories, again, they don't come out of the blue and they're designed to actually sort of design and orient. That's the key word here. They, they, these stories are designed to orient your life. And, and what these lectionary readings do for us, even when we come to sort of out of the blue things like the eschaton and, you know, the rapture and the millennium and, the end of the days, all we're trying to do is set ourselves before it. And what I want to suggest to you this morning as your takeaway thought is that we set ourselves before it by saying, God, we know that you superintend history, that there was a beginning even before space and time. There was God and his intention. And then there's what the Bible calls telos, which just means end. Es eschatos means last, telos means end. But end doesn't mean end of the story like I came to the last page of the book. End in the Greek New Testament has a sense of completion to it. So end in the Greek New Testament is something like, honey, come out to the garage. This is actually one of John Wimber's old podiums from the, the famous Wagner house. And it would be something like, honey, come out to the garage. I've refinished it. It's done. What the author had in mind is now completed. Look, I did it. It's completed. That's the sense of telos. So before space and time, there's God. God created people for a reason. A story's been going on. A part of the New Testament tells us about the end of the story. But what you need to know is that your life does not happen outside of the superintending of God, who both started and who will finish this story. I agree. There's lots of kind of interesting stuff about eschatology. And lots of people have made predictions. Predictions are very, you know, they're, they're tough things. And some of these you've probably heard of, but listen to this one. A couple of predictions by really important trusted people. The founder of uh, IBM was Tom Watson, Thomas Watson. Watson predicted in 1943 this. He said, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. Did you hear that? Tom Watson, the founder of IBM, predicted. He was a highly respected businessman. He was like the Bill Gates of his day. And he said, I predict that there's maybe in the whole world a market for maybe five computers. Popular Mechanics magazine in 1949 made this prediction. They said, um, where there's this sort of calculator, this old computer that's equipped with 18,000 vacuum tubes and weighs 30 tons, they say computers in the future may only have a thousand vacuum tubes and may only weigh 1.5 tons. 
Now, I don't know about you, I travel every week, and I have a laptop, and I'm really happy it doesn't weigh 1.5 tons. It's heavy enough in my backpack. Um, There was an inventor by the name of Lee DeForest. He claimed that, quote, while theoretically and technically uh, television may be feasible, commercially and financially, television is an impossibility. I was at a friend's house last night that has satellite TV. Uh, I, I couldn't find ESPN. How do you, I wanted to see the football scores. How do you find ESPN among 600 channels when you don't know how to use the satellite remote, you know? So it's, you know, you could go on and on. Here's my favorite one. Uh, if you're old enough to remember DECA Music, remember the record company DECA, D-E-C-C-A? Well, the, uh, the, the executives at DECA once predicted this. They said, we don't like their sound. And this was the big prediction. Guitar music's on the way out. Something else is happening. Guitar music's on the way out. That was their prediction in 1962 concerning a few lads from Liverpool. And, you know, who ended up being the Beatles. So it's not just, we can't just pick on Hal Lindsey. If we're going to pick on Hal Lindsey uh, or who's the Left Behind series, those guys, we can't, if we're going to pick on those guys, we've got to pick on Tom Watson and Decca Records and everybody else. Because predictions aren't the point. That's the lesson from the readings this morning. Predictions are not the point. The point is your life arises within a God-started, God-ending story over which he superintends. And that includes things like 10% unemployment and a sinking you know, price of houses that was driving much of the Western U.S. economy. Well, both shores, actually. These amazing skyrocketing housing prices were driving the whole economy, especially on the coast. It includes crazy things like people shooting people at Fort Hood. It includes things like Afghanistan. Or the couples that I know who are in their 70s who were all set for retirement. And in some cases are are almost bankrupt. And in other cases, they're certainly not where they thought they were. They're a third or a half of where they thought they were. None of that happens outside of this story. That's the lesson from the lessons this morning. Anything that happens, happens within this story. If you're a young person, like I have a daughter who's 17, is something that's impacting our house. Do you know that it's becoming almost impossible to get into a UC school with all the budget cuts? And, you know, the the shrinking of class sizes and the offering of classes, they can't take as many students, and tuition skyrocketing at a time when the economy is crashing. And so there's hardly anything, whether you're an old couple dealing with retirement issues or a a middle person with kids and dealing with a shrinking uh, house value and maybe a, a mortgage payment that was scheduled to go up, Or if you're a young person dealing with trying to get in college, none of the things that happen in life happen outside of this story, which began before space and time and has a very clear eschatos, a very clear telos, the completion of what God had in mind. And this is why the Hebrews text is the basis for things like stand your ground or actually the commendation you did stand your ground. There were all kinds of nutty things going around you, but you stood your ground. Or you, you, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. 
How many of you, when you were driving to work a couple of weeks ago and maybe had, you know, KFI on or you picked up the register in the morning or something and heard that the state of California was now going to start taking taxes from you in advance, went, oh, thank God. I joyfully like the confiscation of my property. I mean, you know, those aren't sort of first thoughts, right? But when you stop and you think that lying behind all of this is another reality, Now, this never means that the sort of present reality that we're aware of, putting gas in our gas tanks, uh, writing checks for the kids' tuition, um, you know, going back to school clothes. It's not that those realities aren't real. It's not that they're not important. Christians are not dualists. Christians aren't the kind of people who say the only thing that matters is, quote, the spiritual world and the sort of the natural world doesn't matter. That's not what we're saying. Here's what we're saying. And I hope all of you have done this. I've been doing this since I was a little kid. I don't know why it's fascinated me. And it just happened to me again a week or so ago. I I had a day off, and I was um, sitting in my recliner in my uh, family room, and there's windows everywhere. And the sun was coming up, and it started shining through the windows. And can you picture this? At just that angle where suddenly you could see all the little particles of dust in the air. Have you ever seen that? where the, you know, the sun shines just right, and you see a reality. Now catch this. You see a reality that's always there. It's always there. But in the right light, it becomes apparent. And that's what these texts teach us. That what we're going through in life is real. It's utterly real. Our kids get sick. Our bosses are jerks. Um, good and bad things happen all day, every day. But what's running behind that, what's always there, but that you only see in the light of these kinds of texts, is that whatever's happening in your life, it's being superintended by God. It's being overseen. It's being managed. It's, it's, um, it's nothing's out of his purview or control because he's the author of the story from beginning to end. And so the writer of Hebrews says, so don't throw away your confidence. It'll be richly rewarded. Stick to it. That's the message of these passages. Stick to it. I love the way Peterson puts it in the message. He says, anyone who is right with me thrives on loyal trust. Did you catch that? Thrives on loyal trust. Where do you get loyal trust? You get loyal trust by knowing that somebody is superintending this. Somebody actually knows the end. Um, I can't be the only person in this room who loves sports and is also very busy, and so you, you miss most of the games you want to watch, and so maybe you TiVo them. Well, don't you hate it if you're driving home and you've TiVo'd a game and you forget to turn off the radio, and it tells you the final score, right? I mean, it just it's irritating. Why? Because knowing the end shapes your now. So your now was going to be to go home and and put your feet up and watch the game. And you'd be able to fast forward through those stupid Viagra commercials. Right? I mean, you can tell I like to watch golf. I can't hardly stand to watch golf anymore because I'm just sick of seeing two people in a bathtub. You know, it's like, whatever. But, you know, you've got this whole thing in your mind. I'm going to go home. I'm going to put up my feet. I'm going to relax. I'm going to be able to fast forward through the stupid commercials. And then somebody tells you the end. And knowing the end changes your now. That's the point of these texts. God knows the end. And that changes our now. And us knowing the end through trusting God, through loyal trust in him, 
actually shapes our now. And this is what Jesus means when he says, stand firm, you know, stay with it. That's what required. You won't be sorry if you just stand firm, you will be saved. But on the other hand, you know, there's this advice that, uh, you know, you can read this text in Matthew or excuse me, in Mark, uh, in any of the synoptics, you can read this text in various ways. And the church has read it in various ways over the last 2000 years. I'm very happy to say there's probably multiple fulfillments of these Uh, sort of prophetic passages, but clearly the church in A.D. 70 knew this one. They were standing firm, but when the combination of of fighting from Rome and infighting amongst Jews literally caused blood to run through the streets of Jerusalem, Jesus told them when that starts happening, flee. It's okay, you can flee, because that was a part of his story. That was a part of what he was superintending. So here's the deal. Every human being is trying to secure themselves. There is not, just think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? There's no higher need than for human beings to feel secure. And every human being is trying to secure themselves. The question is, how does one do that? How does one do it in an ethical way? How does one do it in a functional way so that you're not being unethical or dysfunctional? How do you secure yourself in a way that others experience you as for their good? How do you be the kind of person who from the cross, as you've been beaten and bloodied and mocked and spit on, say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing? How do you see soldiers, angry faces coming to arrest you in the garden and say, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you get there's another story running in the background. I'm safe. I'm secure. Don't you know that if this was not a part of God's story, I could call on legions of angels? See, you can never have ever the hope to be good for others until you're first secure. And you are going to try to secure yourself. It's fundamental to humanity. And so some people, they secure themselves with anger. And, and, And they're just, you know, one of those angry kind of people. And that's the way they control their life. Some of you grew up with fathers who that's the way they controlled their home. Or you have supervisors at work who they secure themselves by being able to manipulate everybody else. They grow up to be politicians. Just kidding. Um, But you know what I mean? People have ways of securing themselves. Everybody does. What these texts encourage us is to stand firm because you can stand relaxed. And you can stand relaxed because there's a God who superintends history from beginning to end. And whatever happens in our life emerges out of that, that reality. I'm done with this final thought. We, I know eschatology is confusing. And I don't have time in a 20-minute sermon to, you know, do a course on eschatology. But I can say this. We need the story of the eschaton. We need it. We have to have it. And it has to be important to our life Because the end of the story is what allows us to live well now. The end informs today. The end makes sense of today. It allows us not only to stand firm in the face of whatever's happening in California economics, for instance, but allows us to be peaceful for the sake of others. It allowed Jesus to be a non-anxious presence in the garden so that others could experience his life and his death for their benefit. I just want to say to you, without the story of beginning to end, what you're left with is the story 
of party politics, of economic indicators, of how to get rid of that last little bit of belly flat. You're left with that mother who invented teeth whitening, whoever she is. I mean, isn't she everywhere? Who is this woman? Have you seen this? She's everywhere. Newspapers, magazines. She's in airplane magazines. She's online everywhere. Don't pay for teeth whitening. Come on, you've seen this, haven't you? So this is the stories we're left with. If we don't have the story of the eschaton, all we're left with is a couple of people in a bathtub wondering, okay, when's the time right? Are you with me here? You can be ready whenever. We're literally left with those stories. Those impoverished, puny, little, selfish stories are all that we are left with if we do not have the story of a God who superintends history from beginning to the end. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.